You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperdle. The banking sector survived the regional banking turmoil last March with limited scarring, but this year presents a new set of challenges and opportunities. Hopes for a soft landing are running parallel with expectations for falling interest rates and changes to the Fed's balance sheet management. On today's episode, we talk with Ethan Heisler, editor-in-chief of the Bank Treasury Newsletter, about the 2024 banking sector and how banks can best position themselves in this rapidly changing environment. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Ethan Heisler, editor-in-chief of the Bank Treasury Newsletter. But first, a quick market update. Fourth quarter GDP grew a remarkable 3.3%, well above the consensus estimate of 2%. Core PCE prices grew 2% at an annualized rate for the second consecutive quarter. But the above-trend economic growth will give the Fed good reason to exercise patience in following through with its first rate cut. December PCE data this morning showed inflation continued to increase at a rate consistent with the Fed's 2% target, and personal spending closed out 2023 with no signs of slowing down. Fed officials used their last appearances before the pre-meeting silent period to push back against market expectations for a March rate cut. Dallas Fed President Lori Logan also mentioned the possibility of altering the Fed's current plans for quantitative tightening to ensure that bank reserves and short-term funding pressures do not experience the same fate as they did in 2019. On Wednesday night, the Fed announced that its Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP, would sunset on March 11th as originally scheduled. They also announced that, until March 11th, the borrowing rate for banks using the facility could no longer be lower than the interest paid on reserves. The last couple of months, there had been an arbitrage opportunity for banks from a favorable spread between the two rates. We discussed the BTFP in our interview with Ethan Heisler, though I should note we conducted the interview the day before the Fed's announcement. Treasury yields drifted upward the last two weeks, reversing much of the post-CPI rally we saw in the middle of the month. Intermediate yields are close to levels we saw earlier in January, while the long end of the curve set new highs for 2024 after an increase in European sovereign debt issuance and some relatively hawkish commentary from the Bank of Japan. The coupon auctions this week were the last before the Treasury quarterly refunding announcement next week. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Ethan Heisler. Our guest today is Ethan Heisler, Editor-in-Chief of the Bank Treasury Newsletter. Ethan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is the 2024 banking industry. And I want to start out by addressing something that feels like a long time ago, but is potentially still an area of concern today. Um, And that is the regional banking crisis last March, or regional bank tensions if you prefer. Ethan, has the banking sector managed to survive everything that happened, or are there still some lingering issues that could pose a risk? Well, I think the lingering issues are the potential lessons that have been learned as a result of that crisis. So in terms of liquidity stress on institutions, you could see the numbers for yourself. There doesn't appear to be very much. In terms of deposit outflows, It's a little difficult to really see from HA data because you've got the brokerage CDs masking some of that. But according to what institutions have reported, 
they're not seeing the kind of massive outflows or any kind of real outflows at this stage in deposits into say out of deposits into say money market funds. We've seen those numbers sort of level off. I think that the bigger issue, at least for some institutions, has been the outflow of non-interest bearing into interest bearing deposits. That still seems to be going on, although again, from Q4 uh, earnings call conversations this month, it does appear that uh, banks are seeing a stabilization in those numbers as well. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question in terms of the outflows, in terms of liquidity issues, those are gone. In terms of what are the ramifications of, say, the FHLB 100 and how uh, the FHLBs need to change their approach to making advances, what is the uh, additional capital gold plating that is going to ultimately occur, uh, the capitalization of AOCI, and while that doesn't affect community institutions, at the same time, it has ramifications up and down the line. Capital will be harder to come by for borrowers. Uh, businesses are going to pay a price. Shareholders and financial institutions are going to see a price. Whether any of these things ultimately prevent the next big crisis is hard to say. I think one of the big unknowns is our deposit runs really different today than they were before. We saw deposit runs in 24 hours. Those are not usually the way deposit runs uh, evolve. Whether or not those were one-off unicorn-type situations with Silicon Valley and Signature and First Republic, or whether that's a harbinger of something that's coming, uh, I'm going to look more part of the industry. That's still kind of open to analysis. There's just so many different strands of stuff that went on in 2023. When you ask me that question, I start thinking it through. Gee, there's, there's a lot of different layers to this onion. We can also talk about Fed now if you want digitalization of banking, how that's changed things. I think you bring up, um, you know, a lot of interesting points. Uh, and actually, our first podcast episode, we talked with Gray Bowles um, about six months ago uh, about how banks had adjusted to that rapid rise in interest rates. And so to your points about how um, there are still lingering issues and, you know, maybe they will continue to pose risks down the line. We're still about to enter this next stage of the Fed's policy cycle where uh, interest rates are going to decline, even if it is not at the March meeting. It'll be uh, most likely sometime this year. And so uh, are banks going to struggle with adjusting to um, that that fall in interest rates, even if it is more gradual than we saw the hikes uh, on the way up? How are banks going to um, adjust to uh, these falling interest rates when those kind of rapid hikes are still on their minds? First off, I do want to get on the record that I'm not a big believer in cuts at all this year, despite what the Fed says, despite what the forward curve says, despite what everybody else says. And the reason why I say that is, number one, no, the Fed has not gotten inflation down to 2%. So I think people who have been measuring out the curtains for the new office probably could wait a little bit. Number two, I don't think the Fed is very comfortable with the idea that they take a cut, they do a execute, say, a cut sometime in the second half of this year, no matter how much the dot plot says so. And then the risk is inflation ticks back up. There are seriously, seriously so many unknowns in this conversation. But I 
to just take your point, if rates fall, the banks say we've got anywhere from two to six cuts in the budget. Most will tell you they're hedged for less cuts, not more cuts. So more cuts in the rates probably ding the net interest margins and net interest income in 2024, more so than if it's a couple of cuts and it's sort of towards the back end of the year, in which case I think that institutions are, are looking at a lot of different moving factors. I'll give you an example. Uh, a lot of banks obviously have seen non-interest bearing deposits shift into interest bearing. Well, guess what? If you have uh, beta sensitive deposits, high beta deposits moving up also move down just as quickly. So I think that if you have a lot of floating rate loans and you're worried about resets there, the fact that you've now got more CDs that say are maturing in seven months or so, which is where a lot of the banks have been pricing their deposits, then that really gives you the offset there. When asked, I think every bank manager out there pretty much made the case that there would be like a Nike swoosh to quote, I think, Bill Demchak's idea that net interest income, net interest margin sort of reaches a trough sometime in the middle of this year. And then we start to see a rebound towards the end of the year. Again, in the scenario where you get a few rate cuts. Is there anything banks then should do at this point in the cycle to improve margins? Um, you know, how do how should banks approach uh, this scenario where even if, uh, in your understanding, the Fed should not cut rates, they do? Um, are there any opportunities for, let's say, portfolio restructures to enhance earnings? We've seen that, right? We saw that in the fourth quarter. Banks are opportunistic when the yield curve, like today, is you know you have an inversion between three month and five year, which is I think the sweet spot for most institutions. When you have that inversion reaching you know, record levels of minus 140, 150, 160, you take advantage of that. When the 10 year is below 4%, you take advantage of that. So we've seen a number of regional institutions announce sale and earn back structures. For some institutions, it's just harder. The, the cost of that is a little bit too much of a ding to their capital. They don't wanna take it at this point. I think the smartest thing for financial institutions to do at this point is not worry so much about NIM, but just basically wait to see where we're at in six months. If you start getting rate cuts, guess what happens? You basically start solving your problem. I love to keep pointing out to people, everybody complains that Silicon Valley didn't take the 2023 C-card test, but had they done, they would have passed with flying colors because the severely adverse scenario in, in the 2023 CCAR was that uh, the economy goes to hell in a handbasket and rates go to zero, which would have been the best thing that ever happened to Silicon Valley. I think if rates start coming down here, the AOCI issues start going away, the drag on net interest margins start going away as you start to be able to reinvest bonds that run off the portfolio into higher coupons. So, and loans that we, we price into higher coupons. I think that there's still opportunity for banks to nail it down. I think there's just too much uncertainty for banks to start saying, well, let's try to address our margins or protect our margins because you really don't know which way things are going. People have really shifted their tone at the beginning of this year to the idea that the soft landing has already been executed. And I think you make a good point that inflation is not already down to 2% and there are still some risks. But let's use the historical guide of what a lot of people point to as the last soft landing, 1994 and 1995. 
Now, the, of course, the, the time periods are different. These are not um, identical economies. But if we use that as an example, will we see a period of elevated mergers and acquisitions? So if margins remain compressed, is the only way for earnings to grow through cost cuts and consolidation? I think the natural way will for financial institutions is to consolidate. I think the difference between 1994-95 and today is that the regulatory world looks at M&A a little bit differently than they did back in 94-95. Those were the go-go years where we were putting a lot of institutions together. There was a lot of M&A. Uh, regulators have really put the brakes on it. Clearly, there's some reticence on the part of uh, regulators to give approval to a lot of this consolidation. So I, I, I think that that's going to probably going to overlay any interests by institutions in pushing for heavy M&A. Is M&A the only way to grow? Financial institutions grow with the economy. They grow with um, the way that they approach their customers and the kind of offerings and the innovation. I think there's a lot of way for a lot of ways for institutions to grow through artificial intelligence and using these other technology tech tools or associations with fintechs that allow them to access markets and leverage what they have without having to actually commit shareholder capital to the process. The answer to your question is there really isn't much opportunity here for M&A to really take us to the next level of growth in the bank world. The best way at this point for banks management to do the right thing for shareholder value is to sit tight and wait. I want to move on to uh, the bank term funding program or BTFP, which was set up last year to help banks get uh, some emergency liquidity. So that what happened to institutions like Silicon Valley Bank did not replicate into an industry-wide crisis. Um, so banks would post securities valued at par instead of mark-to-market as collateral and borrow at the one-year overnight index swap rate plus 10 basis points. Now, recently, Fed Vice Chair Michael Barr has said that the BTFP has outgrown its uh, original use as an emergency facility, and he also suggested that it shouldn't be renewed in March. There's been some dissent from other Fed officials, so we'll have to see what happens, but. In your eyes, would there be much lost if this facility were to go away on March 11th? Or really, is it just this outdated thing that isn't providing much support to the banking industry? If it went away, would there be any disruptions from uh, banks suddenly adjusting to a world without the BTFP? Well, I'll put it this way. Banks come into the discount window generally. And we saw it during the financial crisis. We saw it during 9-11. We saw it during um, the initial COVID, and we saw it again last March. Banks come in when there's a crisis. I mean, for all the talk about, you know, banks don't want to use the discount window, uh, the crisis last March was a significant, saw a significant surge to about $150 billion, primary discount window borrowers. So regardless of the BTFP, which was a nifty idea, banks do use the window. As you point out, the BTFP offers rates that are substantially through where you would pay for a discount window loan, much better terms. But the value of these emergency programs, as I think the Bank of England realized with its uh, rescue for the guilt crisis about a year and a half ago, was that 
they sunset. The programs are emergency programs and fill a need of confidence in the market that when the confidence is restored are no longer necessary by definition. I think to answer your question, banks do not need this fund right now. If the Fed does get rid of it, the only question I would ask is what offsets that $162 billion when it goes away. So assuming that over the next 12 months, the $162 billion balance of the BTFP were to run off, there has to be something else on the Fed's balance sheet that absorbs that. Would that be reserves that run down then? Or would that be more of the RRP? We know that the RRP is down below $600 billion at this point and is absorbing all the runoff from uh, quantitative tightening. Over the next six months, the Fed's balance sheet could shrink by another two, three hundred billion dollars, four hundred billion dollars in that period of time. At some point, you run out of the RRP, and that could also impact on on reserves. So the Fed could get rid of the BTFP. I don't think that would set the sun, the moon, and stars. It does have ramifications for the Fed's balance sheet, and what happens with reserves and with the RRP and quantitative tightening. Uh, so the the Fed's reverse repo facility is um, another thing that has come up in the last month um, from commentary uh, from Fed officials that uh, seemingly uh, kind of drifted into the background um, a lot of last year. Um, so usage is is kind of on this trajectory towards zero. But before we get into what that means and in the context of the Fed's balance sheet management, can you explain how the Fed's reverse repo facility works um, and what its purpose is? in the financial system? Well, the reverse repo facility is one of two uh, rates that the Fed uses in an ample reserve system to manage the Fed funds rate. So it forms the bottom, uh, it, it forms the bottom of the range or it supports the bottom of the range for the Fed fund the same way that interest on reserve balances support the top of the range. Um, and that's how the Fed can actually shepherd. Remember, in an ample reserve system, I do. I have more. Res I have more Fed funds. I have more reserves than I need. So therefore, if supply well exceeds demand, what's the cost for? What's the rate on reserves? It's going to be zero. So if you're the Fed and you want to raise the Fed funds rate, the only way you're going to do it is artificially through the reverse repo facility, and interest on reserve balances. So that's that's what the purpose of that is. The Fed can pay interest on reverse repo is the key point. How much balance is in the reverse repo facility is less significant. The reverse repo rate is the anchor for SOFR and SOFR is the repo market. So are you concerned that um, reverse repo usage uh, will, you know, is on a path to hit zero um, sometime this year? Uh, do you think the Fed is worried about that? Are they going to tweak their balance sheet management so that reverse repo has a little bit above zero to give a buffer? How do you see that fitting into uh, balance sheet management in the financial industry the rest of this year? Yeah, I, again, I don't think the balance of the reverse repo facility itself is that important as the fact that the Fed pays a rate to leave money with the Fed overnight. The Fed does not use, uh, does not need to have a reverse repo facility to conduct its monetary policy. What it needs and it always has had was a um, balance sheet of treasury securities 
And on the other side of that, it needs to have the reserves. It has a treasury general account and it has the currency in circulation. So all of this stuff just has to balance. For now, the Fed, you know, we've seen a, uh, a substantial buildup of the TGA and that's come at the expense of the reverse repo facility. If you're the Fed, do you really care where your sources and uses of reserves come from ultimately? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess um, reserves are important for the banks. It's, it's important for the payment system. So there has to be ample reserves. Well, we have $4.1 trillion of reserves today, which is still higher than where we were even five, six months ago in terms of reserves. So I, I think that's the ultimate issue. If the Fed continues to work down its balance sheet, if the Fed does do that, and it did suggest in the minutes that they were going to start to pump the brakes on the caps, maybe lower those caps. If the Fed starts to do that, then, um, and, and, and they do that say in the next year or so, I don't think that causes much damage to overall liquidity in the system. There is no evidence of that. You saw Atlanta Fed president actually make that point in some comments he made this month that, that he didn't see any issues yet in the short-term markets that would suggest the Fed is getting dangerously close to like the, the, the minimum of its balance sheet. Remember the, the balance sheet of the Fed was about $2.4 trillion before COVID. Today, it's still $7.3 trillion, $7.4 trillion. So it was still substantially larger than where we started this whole at, at the beginning of the COVID crisis. Well, if we go back to uh, the last period of quantitative tightening in 2019, um, there were some short-term funding pressures when the Fed realized that bank reserves had become scarce and, and they have developed some uh, heuristics about how um, the level of bank reserves we need in the economy um, to kind of have banking sector stability. Um, sometimes it's given as a, a percentage of nominal GDP, um, but it also feels like we don't really know where that cliff is until we get there. So do you think the Fed has a better grasp on how to wind down QT this time without squeezing bank reserves? No, I think it's going to err on the side of having just more reserves than they potentially need. And again, rely on the reverse repo rate and the IRB to continue to drive policy when they want to raise or lower Fed funds rates. I think that's the only stride approach that they're going to have. So we're always going to be living in a world with much more ample reserves than we've ever seen before. Uh, so do you feel that, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a very ideal strategy if they do execute it. Do you think banks are worried right now that the Fed will uh, drive past that, that inflection point um, a little too aggressively and then they will take things too quickly? Let's say that actually did happen. Another thing that the Fed has just done is have a standing repo facility, which of course they haven't really tried out yet. But it's really the answer to September 16, 2019, or September 15, 2019, which you're referring to with the repo market. SOPA rate went to five and a quarter percent overnight from basically two um, or three. The, um, the standing repo facility allows the Fed to provide the emergency funding to the market and provide additional source of reserves by making loans to dealers much faster than uh, they had been able to respond back in September 2019. So I think that that, that, gives you me, that gives me a lot more comfort. I think that 
most institutions are, 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 you know, they read the news. The news is obviously focused on stuff like this. The Fed's going to overshoot. Fed always overshoots. It probably knowing full well that it really, as to you said, as you said, doesn't really quite know where the line is drawn on ample reserves because, by the way, the the line on what's ample and what's not ample moves around a lot uh, as its balance sheet changes. I think overall, I don't think banks are overly concerned about this as much as the media is making this to be an issue. My my view. What are you most concerned about for the banking sector this year? I want to end with this question. Stuff that we don't know, Will. The stuff that we can't, the, you know, I, I keep coming back to what Silicon Valley happened. And I, you, would, you could say that Silicon Valley, a signature bank, where accidents were, were waiting to happen. Okay. But what, what destroyed them was something that I never saw before. I never expected. The black swan. We spend too much time looking at past history and reassuring ourselves that we won the last war without actually thinking through, but where's that next risk? What am I, what am I not appreciating? We think that things are extreme tail events thing. We, we look at extreme tail events and say, well, that, that's so far-fetched it'll never happen. But maybe what the real thing that banks need to spend time thinking about is what am I assuming is an extreme tail event? that's not really as extreme as I think it is. Because if you look back on it, it's a pretty extreme tail event for the Fed to raise rates by 525 basis points and the economy to basically shrug and yawn. Nobody would have seen that coming. It's a pretty extreme tail event that you've raised rates this way and everybody was calling the Fed called for a recession in the second half of 2023, and none of that actually happened. So I think that for 2024, for going forward, if banks really want to be, bank managers really want to focus on how do I avoid the next big problem, it's think out of the box. What's the known unknowns? And how do I address those? How can I position? Somebody once gave me an example of this. It's like, let's say I'm flying an airplane. No, a better one. I'm the captain of the Titanic. The Titanic is unsinkable. But you know what? Something actually did happen and it sunk anyway. The issue isn't, well, that was like something that was unforeseeable. The issue is, well, but if it happens, what are you going to do to protect yourself? Position yourself so that it's not as deadly as it could be. That's what bank managers need to be thinking about. I, th- I think that's a really interesting point to end on. Um, so so you feel that it's not something that everyone's focusing on, like, let's say, exposure to commercial real estate. Um, but I want to try to reconcile this point with something you said earlier, which is that uh, banks will grow with the economy. Um, and so are banks able to then take those risks of increasing their lending, growing their size with the economy, uh, and then try to build in guardrails so that if these tail risks happen, uh, they are safeguarded in some way, because um, it feels like those are opposite ends of, of kind of risk taking. No, it's not. It's it's just going in with open eyes. It's it's not going in blind. It's going in with better intelligence about what those risks that you face 
are. Just because I know something's risky doesn't mean I don't take the bet. I just need to know what those risks really are weighted at. Banks are in the risk business. That's what they do for a living. It's just saying that often banks, bank management has been blindsided. And being blindsided, I don't know if that's necessarily just you couldn't have avoided it as much as you're not taking advantage of taking, really studying the environment and really thinking about the probabilities. What was the probability? Let's put it this way. March 2022, go to Silicon Valley's CEO and tell them that the Fed is going to raise rates to 520, 525 basis points. And in 12 months, if you don't do something right now, you're going to fail. Laugh you out of the room. But what if he had actually thought, but how could that actually happen, that I would fail? Well, the economy would, not to, would need to not roll over. Well, that's impossible. But is it impossible? Maybe there were some things that actually you could already have foreseen, like all the stimulus money that's been floating around in the economy that's continuing to power it, like turbo, like turbo gas or something. It's like a turbo. I mean, I, I always talk about the economy. I think about this. In World War II, the U.S. government spent $450 billion on bullets, airplanes, and a bunch of stuff that today fills a landfill. It's effectively like taking $450 billion, the equivalent of $5.5 trillion, what we spent during COVID for stimulus. It's essentially taking all that money and flushing it down the toilet. And yet, and yet, and yet, we had a 25-year economic boom. That's the kind of thing you need to think about. What did the COVID stimulus change that makes me think that the history that we've lived through, our experiences, may not be as relevant this time? This time is different is often something people say before they get laughed out of the room. Of course, it's not different. There's always something else. But, you know, just because times are different, it, just because you say something is different, there could be reasons why it is different. We haven't lived, we don't have enough history in financial data to really draw inferences of anything. Most of, most of the data that I look at from the Fed only stretches back about 40, 50 years. You know, maybe there are situations that occurred 150 years ago that we're not even thinking about that could be coming back again. We don't know. I think you're right. A lot of uh, economic relationships we thought were, were kind of uh, like the laws of physics have, have proven to be a little bit uh, more malleable than we thought. And this time really has <laughs> been different. Um, Ethan Heisler, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. You've given us a lot of things to think about. Thanks for having me, Will. That was Ethan Heisler, editor-in-chief of the Bank Treasury Newsletter. I think Ethan makes a broad point that is important to keep in mind as we think about how the banking sector can adjust to changing Fed policy the rest of this year. History is often held up as a guide for what to expect when it comes to things like quantitative tightening, ample bank reserves, or how banks can optimize in an environment of falling interest rates. But because every cycle is different, it's important to not have a false sense of security that safeguarding against the last cycle's problems will ensure protection this time around. The Fed is widely expected to leave rates unchanged at its meeting next week, but the agreement between market expectations and Fed communication the rest of this year stops there. 
There are more than 525 basis point cuts priced into markets right now, compared with the last Fed dot plot showing only three cuts by the end of this year. Markets give roughly 50-50 odds for a March rate cut, so Chair Powell used the press conference to steer market expectations accordingly while, of course, saying the Fed won't make up its mind until the meeting on March 20th. After comments from Dallas Fed President Lori Logan a couple weeks ago, the pace of the Fed's quantitative tightening has now crossed on the radar of financial markets. While we don't expect the Fed to taper its pace of QT in the first quarter, they could lay out a framework at the next couple of meetings. Treasury's latest refunding announcement will also come next Wednesday. We expect the coupon auction sizes to increase at the same magnitude they did at the last announcement on November 1st. Treasury issuance will continue to weigh on bond investors with the widening fiscal deficit, even if the impacts are incremental over time. On the data front, we'll see the December jolts data on Tuesday and the January employment report next Friday. Job growth is expected to have slowed last month, but the unemployment rate is expected to stay under 4%. The following week, the annual revisions to seasonal adjustments in the Consumer Price Index could change the nuances of the inflation trajectory we've seen during the past year. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Compernal, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.